Welcome to Health Hope Harmony, navigating wellness, embracing everybody, and healing minds. I'm your host, Sabrina Rogers, licensed mental health counselor, intuitive eating and body image expert, and recovering perfectionist. We're here to provide you with thought-provoking discussions, enlightening expert interviews, and heartwarming personal stories that delve deep into the world of health at every size, non-diet approaches, body image, eating disorders, mood disorders, and trauma. Each week, we bring you new episodes to help you explore what health means to you and to change how you think and feel about yourself. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes or Spotify. This helps others find and learn about the podcast so they too can change their lives. Welcome back to the show. I am so excited for this episode. I had total fangirl going on with Holly. So this was just such a great experience for me. Holly Paulson is a certified eating disorder registered dietitian in private practice. Her practice is focused on providing nutrition therapy for clients with eating disorders and disordered eating. As a certified intuitive eating counselor, Holly loves to help her clients make peace with food and uses a health at every size approach to nutrition. She's a graduate of the University of Iowa and completed her dietetic internship at Iowa State University. In addition to her work with clients, Holly provides professional case consultation and training to healthcare providers in the field of eating disorders. Holly and I talk about the differences between a dietitian and a nutritionist, how to eat intuitively with a chronic illness, and some of the damages dieting can do. So enough of my blabbing. Let's get to the good stuff. Welcome, Holly. I am I'm super excited about this episode. This is probably one of my like most anticipated episodes. I I think both for me personally and listeners. So welcome to the Emotional Eating Therapist Show. Oh, thank you, Sabrina. I'm so glad to be here and talk with you. Yeah. And I'm really bummed. So interesting little tidbit. Holly and I live in rural Iowa, fairly, Mm -hmm. I mean, rural, you know, rural, everything is fairly close together when we're rural. (laughs) Um, But we have a mutual friend who had been trying to connect us for probably the past four years and for whatever reason, our paths just kept just like sliding by each other. And I wouldn't call her. And I don't know if Jennifer gave you my information. Yeah. Um, but I, I think I had it in my head that like you were this like celebrity. Oh. <laughs> I know that sounds so funny, but I, I did because you're, you know, you're, you're this really well known in the eating disorder space in Iowa as this dietitian who like everybody wants to get into. And I think I had it in my head that, you know, it was going to be like interviewing Oprah. (laughs) Well, that is very flattering and funny. Thank you. Yeah. So now that I've got my fangirl out of the way, um, I always start interviews with guests. Just tell us a little bit about your experience with emotional eating. Mm. Yeah. And emotional eating is such a loaded phrase too, isn't it? I can remember my whole life loving food. I mean, food, it, it's the best, right? And food gives us comfort, gives us joy. And I remember feeling that all through my childhood, uh, really enjoying eating sweet foods, candy, like all kids do. You know, I, re- I think it makes me think of uh Jerry Seinfeld does a stand-up routine once where he talks about kids and their um, 
uh, their li whole life is from one candy experience to the next. When's the next time I get candy? When's the next time I get candy? You know, because we withhold that kind of from kids. But I remember that in my childhood too, being very much loving candy. And as soon as I had my own money, I grew up in a small town where there was a grocery store down at oh, about three blocks away. I would walk down to get my candy. And that power and that enjoyment that came from that, um, that early experience with having my own opportunity to get foods I loved is powerful. But then as uh, I got older, like a lot of teenage girls, I started to notice changes that I was gaining weight. I didn't like that. So I thought, well, you know, one thing we're always told, and especially at that time, well, then you do something about that. Don't eat so much or let's, let's try to change that. And I started as a teenager going on multiple diets, very restrictive diets, and then ending up binge eating. Um, I probably spent six or seven years as a binge eater. And I would say, you know, was, would have been diagnosed with binge eating disorder if that was a diagnosis at that time. Uh, but really much stuck in a cycle of dieting, overeating in secret, starting again, feeling a lot of shame, a lot of embarrassment, um, weight cycling, and really feeling out of control with food and not feeling like I knew how to eat which really should be one of the most normal things, the most natural. I mean, we're all born knowing how to eat. We lose touch with that. So that's one of the reasons I decided to become a dietitian. I thought, okay, well then if I have all this trouble with food, I don't know how to eat, I'll become a dietitian and I'll fix that. Well, as you and I know, that's not the problem. It's not about having this perfect formula to be able to have the body we want or to be able to feel in control of food. It's about being able to let that go. But through learning more about food, I realized um, through my education that a lot of the ideas that I thought about food and a lot of things I thought about nutrition were really only things I had learned from dieting and that there is a better way to eat and there's a way to enjoy food and to feel competent about it. And that was really my goal. And so as I figured that out for myself, finally, over the years and found a place where I was peaceful eating and able to eat really whatever I want without thinking about it, without restricting. I realized that's something I really appreciated being able to help other people with. So that's a lot of what my practice is. I work with patients with disordered eating, wanting to give up dieting, and then a lot of clients with full-blown eating disorders where that disordered eating has really tipped the scale and a lot of that, and no pun intended, but biologically into something that starts to change the structure of the brain. And so we really untangle a lot of those messages. So one of my favorite things to do is to help people disconnect from diet culture, normalize food, enjoy food, and feel competent about eating again. And it's not about dieting. It's not about good foods, bad foods. It's about connecting with yourself, knowing what you like to eat, and really relaxing about it right? Because emotional eating is all about anxiety and soothing that and coping with emotions. And part of eating normally, intuitively is letting that go and letting that be. So no, I love to help people with that. Um, it's, it's a very rewarding field to be in. Thank you for sharing. And I think one of the questions that comes up a lot when I'm working with clients, whether in the counseling or coaching capacity is, What's the difference between a nutritionist and a dietitian? And when do I need to enlist their help? And who, who should I enlist? 
Ah, yeah, that's a great question. I'm glad you asked that because it is something that comes up a lot that uh, people aren't aware that there is a distinction. So a nutritionist, that kind of broad term, would be someone who, I don't know how you define a nutritionist, but someone who works in giving nutrition advice, studies food and nutrition maybe. Uh, but what is important to know is that anyone can call themselves a nutritionist. It doesn't have any credentialing behind it. Um, you know, it's just, it's, just, it's just a word really, that you can call yourself a nutritionist. All dietitians are considered nutritionists because we all work in the field of nutrition, have studied nutrition, but not everyone who calls themselves a nutritionist is necessarily a dietitian. So the distinction of a dietitian is a registered dietitian, completed a bachelor's degree in nutrition and dietetics, has had all that coursework in physiology, biochemistry, foods, health, and then they have passed a, a board exam that demonstrate that they are qualified to provide dietetic counseling, dietetic advice to people. And there's licensure in Iowa. You have to have a license to actually practice as a dietitian. So dietitians provide what is called medical nutrition therapy. So if someone is looking for uh, assistance with, let's say, diabetes, heart disease, uh, chronic illness, kidney disease, where food is really part of the treatment or the regimen for managing the disease, it's really best to seek out the help of a registered dietitian. A registered dietitian would uh, review lab work, would review medical history. Those are things if, if a person is a nutritionist, they would not necessarily have um, licensure and skills to evaluate. If a person is looking for help with managing disordered eating, that can be done through a nutritionist if that nutritionist has the skills to evaluate disordered eating. It's very important though to see a registered dietitian in disordered eating care because there's often that point where disordered eating is really an eating disorder. And this is a medical condition, it's a psychological condition. It's something that needs more help than just reading a book. Yeah, a dietitian can work in all areas of eating, whether it's disordered eating, wanting to stop dieting, um, or make peace with food or a medical condition. I don't know if that distinction makes sense or. Yeah, it, it makes sense to me. And as far as like the mental health field, there's, there's a distinction between at this point, the coaching profession is not a regulated entity. And so right. anybody could put up a shingle and call themselves a coach. Whereas in order to call yourself a counselor or a therapist, you have to have that master's degree and again, board certified, some, some sort of exam. Right. So it sounds like very, very similar. And I, as you were talking, you mentioned some more of those like chronic diseases where maybe food is part of the treatment plan, whether that's diabetes, liver, other organ yeah. issues. Can you talk more about how how food plays a role into that and maybe shed some light onto some of the myths that, you know, we don't need to completely restrict all oh. sugars if we're diabetic. Oh my goodness. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So, you know, people who are diagnosed with a chronic disease like diabetes or heart disease, kidney disease, any disease that we think of as being associated with food right there, it sets up this relationship with food that food has become the enemy of sorts, right? Especially, so let's say somebody who has diabetes, it's, that's an example that most people are kind of familiar with. They know that, or they believe that if someone has diabetes, oh, that means they can't eat sugar. And that's not true, okay? But it's, it's a common 
misbelief. But it also for the person who is newly diagnosed with diabetes, or even someone who's had it for years, there's that conception that, okay, sugar is my enemy, food is what makes me sick, and my relationship with food becomes anxiety ridden and adversarial. And really, that's, that's not the case. Because once we start putting those boundaries around food, it makes overeating, emotional eating, binge eating more likely. As soon as we try to, as I know you've talked about in your podcast before, as soon as we start to put rules around food, food becomes more desirable. As soon as we don't eat enough by restricting or by following some specific meal plan, the body biologically responds by making binge eating more likely because it sends out all these signals to protect us that say you need more to eat. So for a person with diabetes, for example, if they are under the impression that they can't eat certain foods and they don't have them, so let's say they say, oh, you're not supposed to eat carbs if you have diabetes, right? First of all, that's not true. Carbs are very important to someone with diabetes. They are life-sustaining for all of us, even people with diabetes. But if someone with diabetes has that impression or has been told that even by a nutritionist is a good example of that. There are many nutritionists, so people who don't necessarily have background in nutrition, who provide coaching or advice or even write books for people with diabetes on no carbs or paleo diets. And that can cause damage, which is where I'm sure when you're talking about the distinction between a counselor and a coach in your profession, someone who does not have the training can cause damage in a situation that can cause harm to a patient. So restrictive diets that say no carbs, no sugar for someone with diabetes can actually cause damage and can underfeed the person, create this biological cascade of events that happen that makes the person overeat. And that's not a failure, but then the person feels like, well, then I failed. And then they overeat and then they restrict again. And then they it's it stuck in this cycle. And actually that cycle of binge eating and restriction is more harmful for our health than just eating, than just eating three meals and snacks whenever you need them. An interesting statistic, or I find this interesting in my work with patients with diabetes, is that in people with type 2 diabetes, or what we used to call adult onset diabetes, but people with type 2 diabetes, statistics say that 40% of people with type 2 diabetes have diagnosable binge eating disorder, 40%. In the general population, it's more like five to 6%. So having diabetes puts a person at a risk for binge eating disorder, makes it more likely. And I suspect that's because of the rules and restraints we put around eating. I, I hadn't heard that statistic before, but wow. Yeah, yeah. And so you people might think, well, then maybe they had binge eating disorder and that's what gave them diabetes. No, <laughs> it doesn't work like that. What we know is that the, the messaging around diabetes and the messaging around how a person is supposed to eat with diabetes or that a person has given themselves diabetes. I mean, that's part of common culture in movies and commercials that, oh, I'm going to give myself diabetes. I'm having a soda. No, it's that messaging that drives people to move away from normal eating and to restrict their eating that leads to the binge eating and diabetes. So people might say, well, you can't eat intuitively with diabetes. You know, you have to have boundaries on what you eat. No, I would say that with diabetes, it's even more important first to heal that relationship with food. 
and then to address other things that we know make a difference in managing blood sugar. But I should impart the distinction here. If a person has type one diabetes, which is that is, you know, insulin dependent diabetes, uh, the type of diabetes that starts in childhood often, that's different. You know, if a person is taking insulin, there are specific, um, specific recommendations to be made and specific uh, patterns that would have to be followed. So that's a little bit different. But in, you know, in type two diabetes, which is the more common form of diabetes, managing eating by confidence in eating, intuitive eating is the first step. And I kind of think of it as the umbrella over diabetes treatment. And that's one area I do work a lot in is, is working with clients with diabetes uh, from what we would consider a weight neutral approach. I mean, for a long time, the management of diabetes has been, well, you need to lose weight. No, <laughs> there are yeah. many other ways. My mom had diabetes for, I can't remember how many years, but it was quite a few years before she passed away. And that was one of the big messages back then. And that was, you know, 20 years ago, almost was yeah. her doctors just kept telling her to lose weight. Mm -hmm. And I, I didn't know what I know now back sure. then to help her navigate any differently. And there's, there's a lot of shame wrapped exactly. up in that of, and the stigmatism that diabetes is a, a fat air quotes here, fat disease. Right. right. And, and it's so, it's, it's, it's heartbreaking. And I'm sorry about your mom. And I think, and there were so many other people like her that spent a lifetime feeling guilty for their diagnosis of diabetes, for feeling deprived. And then naturally, a lot of them eating foods that they felt guilty about eating and feeling shame. Um, yeah, and not knowing what we know now is that you can eat sugar with diabetes, you can eat anything you want with diabetes. It's not about the food, but it is really important to be connected with how we're eating and how we feel about food. And, you know, when they used to tell people lose weight with diabetes, that's how you control it. Like it might've been like the first recommendation given by a healthcare provider be, you need to lose weight. You have diabetes, you need to lose weight. We know then for people who lost weight and saw improvement in their diabetes, it wasn't the weight loss that improved the diabetes numbers. It was the behaviors the person employed to get there. So maybe they were exercising more. Maybe they were um, paying attention to when they were hungry. Maybe they were eating breakfast. Maybe they were eating more fruits and vegetables. It's those type of things that do independently make a difference in managing blood sugar. Not the weight. Not the weight. No, it is not the weight. It is not. No, unfortunately. One, one of the things that I've noticed is sometimes it's really hard for, especially people who have been stuck in that diet cycle or that restrict binge cycle to make the shift into a, into intuitive eating. What would you give as like a really, a base level starting point of this is how you can start to be more intuitive and listen to your body. That's a great question because sometimes you can't just jump into it, right? If, if someone has been dieting for years or eating on the other end of the spectrum from your years, going back and forth between restricting and feeling out of control with eating, those natural hormones that regulate hunger and fullness are probably not working real reliably. So what we start with is saying, okay, at first let's try just some structured eating. 
I can give you an example of um, most of the people that I would start working with, um, not most of them, but it's very common for someone to come in and say, well, I usually just have like uh, a boiled egg for breakfast. I'll have a chicken breast and salad for lunch. And then it's late in the day when people have difficulty in there. And again, they're very hungry and their body responds with saying, okay, we need to eat. And they haven't had enough carbohydrate through the day and they end up overeating. That can be a, norm, a normal, typical cycle for someone who's restrictive eating. That person to go right to eating whatever they want, whenever they want, doesn't work well. So we start to recondition those hunger and fullness cues by some planned eating regularly. So what would it be like to have a full breakfast? Maybe you'll have something with some protein, like some eggs and some toast for a carbohydrate, maybe some fruit alongside that. Then what would it be like to make sure that you have a full lunch with carbohydrate foods and a protein? What would it be like to have dinner on schedule and snacks when you're starting to feel hungry in between? We usually start with the rule of let's try not to go longer than five hours without nourishing yourself with something. So reconditioning normal hunger and fullness cues. Once per a person has started to feel less chaotic with their eating, you know, less back and forth. Once they start eating regularly, then it can be time to explore, okay, what do I really want to eat? What do I like? And can I fit whatever I want to eat in that framework of just eating when it's time to eat? And that takes a lot of, a lot of uh, uh, exploring what our thoughts are about foods and why some foods, foods feel like good foods. I'll use air quotes on that and bad foods. A lot of unpacking of that. Mm-hmm. And that's something that, yes, people can do kind of on their own, just through some introspection, some journaling, some other stuff. But that's also where, like, working with a provider like myself in the mental health field or Holly right. in the nutrition dietetic field can really help mm-hmm. guide you through some of that. And oh, I, I think if I had had somebody, you know, at the beginning of my journey, I don't think it would have taken me nearly as long to get right. to where I am. If, if I had kind of like a, you know, a Yoda, a Jedi master saying, no, that's totally normal. That's okay. That's exactly where you need to be. Great job. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And it does make a difference to have somebody who already sees the whole big picture of it to be able to help you with your journey through that in making peace with food or however we want to describe that. And I feel the same way. If I didn't have to figure it out on my own, I probably could have done a lot sooner. Somebody would have just said, you don't need to diet. That's the problem. Instead of feeling like a failed dieter, that was the problem. Um, so, you know, emotional eating, disordered eating exists on a continuum, right? So there are some people that maybe feel like, oh, you know, I eat when I'm stressed or I eat too many cookies. I'll use quotes for too many cookies because there's not such a thing as too many cookies <laughs> or I eat too many cookies. You know, that can just be a little bit of that beginning spectrum of needing to maybe reevaluate their relationship with food. Sometimes people can do that on their own just by some awareness and some journaling saying, okay, why am I eating? How hungry am I? What do I want to eat? Am I putting rules around myself or am I holding myself back from eating? Or am I not eating enough carbohydrates and really craving them later in the day? So that's kind of on the early end. And people can sometimes sort that out with listening to podcasts like yours, uh, reading books, um, Maybe. And then as we move on, though, once disordered eating or dieting or whatever we want to call it starts to interfere with life and that guilt and that shame, absolutely working with a counselor like yourself or an intuitive eating coach 
can be appropriate to help them untangle that and to guide them and to be able to point out some things that might be working to their disadvantage in their eating. On that other end of the spectrum, though, there is where eating becomes, again, you know, full-blown eating disorders, disordered eating even that is interfering with life. If a person can't go to a restaurant because they're afraid of what's in the food or they're afraid they can't prepare it themselves, um, those are things that really benefit from both a counselor and a dietitian, registered dietitian to sort out those things. So it's really kind of where they are in that continuum. You know, and, and in emotional eating, for some of us who fall on that real far end of the spectrum with binge eating disorder and emotional eating, that's almost like a punishment, right? People use it as a, as a punishment and, you know, therapy counseling is really important in that. Most of the clients I work with, I always require that they have established with a therapist as well. If we're working on an eating disorder diagnosis, because it's a huge part of it. It's amazing how much food and mind and body are all connected and we don't you know, unless we're in this realm, we don't think about it that way. We think food over here and then my body over here and my mind over here. And they're all mixed together. They are. They're all connected. And I think science really only knows the tip of the iceberg with that. You know, we don't even know how the, the gut microbiome, you know, or our digestive tract is tied into neurofunction or to our brain and how we think just the tip of the iceberg of how that's connected. But when you think, when you mentioned, you know, um, brain and eating and all that being and our emotions being connected. I mean, that's like from the very time that we're born, there's such a connection between emotions and eating. I mean, babies are nurtured and fed from the moment they're born. And when, when everything is in a good environment, of course, um, the privilege of that food is comforting. Food is emotional. There's connection there and it's supposed to be that way. It's nurturing. Yeah. And then we start to at some point, look at that as a bad thing. If we enjoy food, it's supposed to be enjoyable. Mm-hmm. It is supposed to be. And you're <laughs> completely right that somewhere along the journey of life, we learned that there are, there are good foods and there are bad foods. And I think a lot of that, you know, bless our parents because they're doing the best that they can given what they know and where they're at at the time. A lot of that comes from our, our caregivers. Mm-hmm. And if, if your caregiver, especially your primary caregiver doesn't have a good relationship with food or their body, chances are that's going to be passed on to you. And I always like, like to normalize that with clients of like, this isn't your fault. One, we're a product product of our environment. You can't go through any grocery store and go through the checkout line without seeing some sort of magazine that says who wore it better or lose X amount of pounds and X amount of days. Like we're Mm -hmm. constantly being bombarded with that message. Right. Constantly. We all live in that diet culture soup, if we want to use that metaphor, you know, that we're just all existing in there. And we start to think it's true, right? That there are these, that there's this perfect way of eating. And if I just eat this way, everything will be fine. My body will be the way I want it to be. And my health will be perfect. And it, it just doesn't work that way. And then when we say being at the tip of the iceberg for what we know about the science of eating, even as far as nutrition, you know, what most people know about nutrition, as I mentioned before, we get from dieting or from diet culture. And that's the list of the good foods and the bad foods. Mm-hmm. It doesn't work that way. Nutrition is not all that minutia of every little good food, bad food detail. I tend, when I start to work with people, I say, let's put all the food in one basket. 
because it is really all the same. And that's part of how we can teach nutrition in a way that doesn't trigger that messaging of disordered eating. So what we really know about food, and this is one of the things that helped me untangle my own disordered eating and binge eating, was knowing that, you know what, all foods get broken down into their three macronutrients, carbohydrate, protein, and fat, no matter what it is, no matter whether it's a Twinkie or whether it is chicken and brown rice and broccoli. It all gets broken down into carbohydrate, protein, and fat, and at its basic elements, our body doesn't know the difference. Okay, so our body knows it gets some antioxidants and good fiber from the chicken and broccoli and rice, but it's not that the Twinkie is bad. It's that the Twinkie didn't give the good stuff. See, not everything we eat has to have all the micronutrients in it. There's room for Twinkies and the other food. Put it all together, and then we listen to our body and how we feel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and, and it's, it's fun. It, it <laughs> is. And food food is meant to be fun. Like that. That's yes. why people like to go out to eat. That's why chefs like to cook. Is yes. Is there so many different combinations of food that you can put together and have fun with it? Add some play back into your life anywhere right. you can. And food's a great place to do that mm-hmm. when it doesn't hold all of that power. Right. Right. When it is not the enemy too, and it is just the enjoyment of it. And, you know, feeding yourself foods you enjoy is an act of self-care, right? It's taking care of yourself. But we think about when people think about taking care of themselves and they think about food, they think about, well, I'm depriving myself. If I'm going to take care of myself, then I'm not going to eat this. I'm not going to eat that. And really it's about nurturing yourself. And when people start to reconnect with, okay, when am I hungry? Okay, I'm thinking about, okay, how hungry am I? What do I want to eat? That's that next step. What do I really want? And I think of it like a pegboard, really. I was visualizing, okay, you've got this pegboard each day. You need to fill up. You need to get enough to eat first, right? Everybody, that's the main foundation of eating is getting enough, whatever it is. Human body is really resilient. We can eat a whole mixture of foods. Doesn't have to be perfect. But then you need to get, you know, carbohydrates, protein, and fat. But also the other pegs in that pegboard we need to fill up is the enjoyment of food, right? Because you can be hungry, you can be full, but if you're not satisfied and enjoying what you're eating, you're not going to be done eating. Sometimes I'll use the example of, you know, I could be really starving, hungry. And then if I have a great big bowl of boiled potatoes, to me, it was not very satisfying. I really wouldn't like that. But if I ate that big bowl of boiled potatoes, I'd be full. But I wouldn't be done looking for food. I would not be satisfied because those pegs in the pegboard for what I really wanted to eat was not fulfilled. So people getting to that switch to say, what really makes me happy? What, what do I want to eat? And it can become like almost like a dance throughout the day between, okay, am I hungry? Yeah, I'm hungry. What do I want to eat? Do I want something sweet, salty, crunchy? And if you get to choose each time you're hungry based on what sounds good, then it's kind of fun. Well, then, okay, if all foods are available to me, then what do I want next? And then when I'm full, stop. Then next time I get hungry, what sounds good now? And that being able to tune into that is really, it's rewarding, rewarding for people. The other question that kind of comes up a lot with, with that intuitive eating piece and just honoring what your body wants and needs in the moment is, well, how do I plan for that? Mm. You know, and, and I don't think you give meal plans 
but also how do, <laughs> how do you make a grocery list so that we're only going to the grocery store, you know, once, once a week, so that we're not going every right. single day and still have things on hand that we, we like to eat. Right. And, and I think it's, it's about being flexible too, knowing that not everything we eat is going to fill all the pegs, peg holes at the same time. It's okay. Sometimes we eat something and we're like, oh, that was okay but wasn't really what I wanted. But then if I'm allowing myself that next time, well, maybe I will choose something, you know, maybe then I want some chips or something lighter. I don't know. But to plan for that as, you know, as in feeding your family or as in having foods on hand, it may be meaning keeping a variety of things. What if we want something, you know, crunchy and savory and maybe we want pizza. So we keep things on hand to make pizza. Maybe it's sometimes we want something soothing like, pasta. Well, we, maybe we have some of that on hand. And then maybe there's other things like, uh, light things like salads or, and also I want to impart when I'm even saying that, that that's a privilege too, to be able to purchase things that are variety and are helpful. And that many of us don't have that opportunity. It's only what our budget will allow. And then we just do the best we can. Right. And again, that first level of healthy eating is eating enough. Right. So I use the example a lot that sometimes you'll see a sale for Jack's pizzas, five for ten dollars. If that's where your budget allows, then that's what you buy, because the first thing is getting enough and then adding in things as you can canned fruit, you know, um, frozen vegetables, if you like those, it doesn't have to be perfect, right? The first thing is getting enough to eat. I think that's really good advice. I hope a listener, if not more listeners can kind of find some relief in that of like, oh, I don't have to be perfect. No, I don't have to have everything fresh. Holly no. said, it's okay to eat Jack's pizzas if that's what I can afford. And that's what Absolutely. I like. Right. And if you like that, yes, yes. I like Jack's pizza. <laughs> me too. I used yeah, to be I a big fan of Totino's. Uh-huh. Like that's what got me through undergrad. Yeah. I think they changed the recipe. Either that or I'm just eating more mindfully. They don't taste as good now. Ah. <laughs> and it was a totally different experience at that time, too. Like you say, they got you through undergrad. They were a f- comfort and a friend. They were reliable. They were a comfort and a friend. And they also were dirt cheap. Because back, yes. back in those days, you know, that was like 20 years ago, they yeah. were less than a dollar. Right. So I would go and, and I would go to the grocery store when they were on sale. So they were even cheaper than less than a dollar. And I could have one of those and it would fill me up for the rest of the night. And I was good. Right. Right. And that's perfectly fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Right. We so much judge food choice, food choices and our worth based on what we eat. And that's wrong on so many levels, wrong in that there's nothing moral about food. There's nothing moral about it. And that it's a privilege to be able to have access to lean meats, fresh produce, and whole grains as nutrition information would lead us to believe is the only way to eat. That's a privilege and that's not a necessity. There's many ways of eating, many paths of healthy eating. Yeah. And there's no right way. No, there is no right way. (laughs) Demonstrated by all the cultures in the world that all eat differently. And I just want to apologize to all the other perfectionists or recovering perfectionists out there. Sorry, there's, there's no right way. You just got to figure out what's good enough for you. Right. And that's a hard, hard thing to accept sometimes because 
especially with people who are very heavily into disordered eating, it does scratch an itch in our brain, you know, that, okay, this is right. I'm doing this the way I've been told by someone is perfection or is, is right and moral again, that judgment. And there's so many other ways to feel safe and to feel confident besides what we eat. And because when we start to mess with what we eat, it creates a lot of other problems. Guilt, shame, and that cycle. Yeah. Yeah. Let's shift gears and go into more of like a, a lightning question round. Sure. And then I'll see if that triggers anything else or there's anything else that you want to make sure that the listeners know or hear before we can completely wrap up. So, and and these are all coming from questions that have been emailed to me from listeners from the show, people on my Facebook group, uh, social media. So sure. They are. Okay. (laughs) Uh, So how can someone find dietitians for referrals, whether it's in Iowa or across the States so if you're looking to work with a registered dietitian, which I would recommend if you have, you know, any medical conditions or suspect you might have an eating disorder, um, working with a registered dietitian, you can go to eatright.org, which is ironic that that is the name of the um, organization that credentials dietitians, eatright.org, and you can find access to dietitians in Iowa. Um, if you're looking for help with disordered eating, the Eating Disorder Coalition of Iowa has a providers list for both therapists, counselors, and dietitians, and there may even be some healthcare practitioners that work with eating disorders. So that's a good resource as well. Good. And I, yeah, I will put links for both of those in the show notes so that you, you don't Great. have to write them down real quick if you're walking or driving right now. <laughs> so this is a good question on so many levels. How do we pick a dietitian that will be the right fit for us? Oh, that is a good question. And I think it just depends on most dietitians. If they're working um, in private practice or for a clinic or anything, we'll allow you to have a phone call first to, and I do that with all, all new clients. We'll do like a 15 minute, if you'd like, phone or video chat, just to talk a little bit about what your goals are, what you're hoping to work on. Uh, most dietitians and I would share what my philosophy is. Um, how we would work to achieve your goals. And then I think you just know whether it feels like a comfortable situation to you. Um, And definitely if it's uncomfortable, then that's not a good fit. That's a good sign. Let's find somebody else. Right. Exactly. Find somebody else. And not all dietitians are the right fit for all clients. And same in the counseling therapy world. Right. And and finding that practitioner, whether it's a dietitian or a counselor or a a primary care physician who personality wise you click with is instrumental in healing. And that is the same with healing the relationship with food and competence in eating. Yeah. Yeah. It has to be somebody that you feel connected to because that therapeutic relationship, if somebody's going to guide you in making changes in something so normal yet personal, which is eating, you know, you want to have a good connection. What are the typical costs and can insurance be billed? They vary from dietitian to dietitian. I don't take insurance. Uh, My uh, business is private pay. Most dietitians in private practice, to my knowledge, are private pay because insurance doesn't typically reimburse dietitian services. And that is a whole nother uh, advocacy and uh, legislative uh, issue. 
Uh, however, some insurance companies do cover dietitian services. So probably a third of my clients do have benefits through their insurance. I provide them with a super bill. They turn that into their insurance and they do receive reimbursement for their sessions. So if you're listening to this and you want to work with a dietitian, would you recommend calling your insurance plan and yes. asking if they cover dietitian mm-hmm. services? Yeah. I would recommend calling and asking what my benefits are for uh, registered dietitian services. Mm-hmm. And it may make a difference if a person has a diagnosed eating disorder, then coverage is better, right? That your, your company may say, if you have a diagnosed eating disorder, if your doctor has referred you because it's medically necessary, then that service is covered. A lot of insurances will cover for diabetes. Medicare does. Um, so many insurances follow that. Do they ever go to people's houses or to the stores with them to help them the word is clean their food supply and teach them more about food selection. Some dietitians do. And that has been an area of dietetics that would be more like, um, it's not the type of uh, dietetics work I do because I don't think any foods are a bad choice. So I would not be asking you to clean out your cupboard, but it used to be that, and some dietitians still do, especially if they're focused on weight loss, which I do not work on intentional weight loss. I work on normalizing weight through improving your relationship with food, right? Naturalizing your body's weight. But some will go into your house, clean out your cupboards with you, say, get rid of this, all the bad food, air quotes again. And so you can't have chips in your house, no cookies. Well, then what is the first thing that you're going to want tonight (laughs) once all the chips and the cookies are gone? Normally, it's going to be chips and cookies. So that can be a short-term fix. There are dietitians who do that, and I'm I'm not impugning their work. That's another way of practicing. So yes, you can at some grocery stores. There are dietitians on staff that will take you through the store and uh, help you shop and find foods that fit what you're looking for. Dietitians who are helping clients make peace with food or improve their relationship with food don't do that. The last, last one for this like lightning, which isn't very lightning, but that's what we're going to call it. What role do dietitians play in helping a client with meal prep? And again, it would depend on the type of work you're doing with a dietitian. Okay. So I can tell you with my work with clients, we would talk about meal prep from how it would help you in achieving your overall relationship with food. If when you get home from work, you're starving and nothing is ready and you're stressed until you grab a bag of chips and sit down and eat because you don't have anything ready, then that's a, a step in that chain of events, right? To go from being starving, feeling deprived to eating a bag of chips. That's a step we can intervene on and say, okay, what would it have been like if I would have had a couple meals already in the refrigerator? Would I eat one of those and nourish myself with that? And would I feel better? Okay. We would talk about meal prep from what does it do for me? Not that, oh, you must meal prep because that's what so-and-so on Instagram shows is meal prepping so that you can be the size. That's a little different, but how can it help you with being prepared to eat with nourishing yourself and feeling better? So we will talk about them. Sometimes people are starting really at square one with eating and don't know what am I going to make? And so we would talk about some simple things to get started. You know, what are some protein foods that you like? What are some carbohydrate foods you could have with that? And it could even be something as simple as Jack's pizza and a can of peaches. It just depends. I love that philosophy of looking at meal prep as more from a a place of Mm self-care rather than 
a meal plan that I need to follow to make sure that I get all of my calories and all of my macronutrients. Right. And right. check all the boxes and do right. it right. Yeah. That is a, a box to be put in, right. To say that this is how I have to eat, that this is what I need to do. And that just does not work and is not necessary and is not what we would consider healthy eating. There anything that's either come up that you want to touch a little bit more on, or is there anything that we didn't touch on that you want to make sure the listeners know before we leave? Well, that's a good, a good question. We've talked about so many things and I, and I really appreciate your podcast and the issues that you're bringing forth and the conversation today. I would just say that a lot of times I start to work with people who've had a really uh, adversarial relationship with food in their bodies for years. And they feel like, you know, this is, this is me, this is my failing, and this is never going to be able to change. And that's, that's not necessarily true. I wanted to say that's not true. I believe that's not true. In all the cases, I have worked with people who have had severe eating disorders for over 20 years, and they're able to make peace with both their body and food again, and to be able to eat all foods. And that with that, as you mentioned before, looking for advice and information in places that are credible and not taking all of our information about nutrition and how to eat from anyone else, other than knowing that you're the only expert of your body and what you need, but also knowing that you may need some guidance in reconnecting to that. And what does that look like? And I think about work with eating as really reducing the chaos around eating, the noise in your head, the negative thoughts, and then putting back the pleasure of eating as a form of self-care and really just peace and, and confidence again. So it's possible for everyone. I believe. When life's too short and food oh. tastes too good yeah. to not enjoy it for the time that we're here. Absolutely. And it's supposed to taste good. It's supposed to be good. And the, the feelings that we get from eating and enjoying food, which can be connected to shame now are really supposed to be connected to pleasure and the chemicals in your brain that are soothing and that make you happy. Yeah. It's supposed to. Yeah. Biologically it's meant to. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> From the moment of birth, food is supposed to make you happy, calm, and comforted. And I think that is just a beautiful way to end it. So Holly, thank you so much for coming on. It has been a pleasure. And I, I really hope that the listeners get a lot from this episode. Thank you, Sabrina. And thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Before you go, thanks for listening to Health Hope Harmony, navigating wellness, embracing everybody and healing minds. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to me. This helps others find and learn about the podcast so they too can change their lives. The material presented in this podcast is not an attempt to practice medicine or give specific medical advice, including, without limitation, advice concerning the topic of mental health. The information contained in this podcast is for the sole purpose of being informative and is not meant to be considered complete and does not cover all issues related to mental health. Moreover, this information should not replace consultation with your doctor and or other qualified mental health providers or specialists. If you believe you or another individual is suffering a mental health crisis or other medical emergency, contact your doctor immediately. Seek medical attention in an emergency room or call 911. Listening to this podcast using the website or social media pages, you may be provided with links to websites operated by third parties. Sabrina Rogers nor Health Hope Harmony do not control 
such websites and are not responsible for the content and operation of such sites. Links to other websites are provided solely as a courtesy and references in the links are not endorsed, approved, or sponsored by Sabrina Rogers or Health Hope Harmony. We do not verify the accuracy of the information on those websites. You must rely on the advice of your medical providers for treatment and diagnosis and not on the information contained in these websites. Listening to this podcast, use of the website, and any other website to which a link is provided remains the responsibility of the user. Sabrina Rogers and Health Hope Harmony specifically disclaims the claim of liability, damages, personal or other kind incurred as a result, directly or indirectly, by the use and application of this material. If you've made it this far, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy the show. Be well, friend.